0: Hey there, it's Ashley Stahl here, counterterrorism professional turned career and business coach. And I am here for those moments when you look in the mirror and you realize it's time to make some sort of radical change or U-turn in your life so that you can stop operating on cruise control and start living your life on purpose. So join me here on the U-turn podcast every single week where you're gonna be hearing from inspiring, insightful guests, be it CEOs, spiritual leaders, love experts, or of course... Yours truly, so that you can become your very best self without having to take life so seriously. And don't forget, if you head on over to U Turn Podcast. Dot com. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com. You're going to get access to show notes, which have books and resources mentioned by our guests, as well as access to one of my four free e-courses over at U-TurnPodcast.com. Whether you want to land a new job you love, get clarity on the best career path for you, launch that dream business, or deepen your romantic relationships. Whew, okay, enough about me. Let's get this party started with this week's guest. Hi, everybody. It's Ashley here, and I have Dan Cable, who is a professor of economics at London Business School and happens to be having his book out right now called Alive at Work. So obviously, we're going to be talking about how to be more alive at work between neuroscience, happiness, overcoming burnout, and life purpose. Uh, Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, So talk to me. How did you even get to this place where you are a professor, and what led you to study and share all of these important topics.
1: The thing that I think is most cool is the idea that work can like make people feel more alive or make people feel like they need to shut off. And mm-hmm. way back when I was a psychology major, I was at Penn State University. That was the part of psychology that thrilled me because I... Maybe, like many of us, I come from a family where work is literally a four letter word. Work is, here's what work means where I come from what you don't want to do. Mm. And I thought it so interesting to start thinking about this other approach, which is some people actually kind of like it and get a buzz from it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, so I dove from there.
0: And I mean, was there any, so do you think you were inspired to work on work? <laughs> because you were uninspired by it growing up?
1: Um that's a great question. Many of the jobs that I had growing up were the sort that, you know, 15 to 20-year-olds have, you know, working in grocery stores and you know, you know, what you might say routine or dull jobs, but I think that what's more important or what was most interesting to me is how I now believe it's less about the job and more about the way you're using the job. That's one of the things that I guess I have stumbled on. And I guess I've also become really intrigued by um, individuals and their leaders can work together to take any job and actually make it kind of interesting and make you light you up. Mm-hmm. And that's actually some of the stuff that we're going to talk about, um, I think, on this podcast.
0: Yeah. So everybody listening, Dan and I were just talking prior And, um, obviously you can hear in his voice, he's the realist. So far, (laughs) he's going to be really giving us a lot of information. And the first point we had talked about is engagement and how, you know, how many articles have we all read that say engagement, you know, employees aren't being engaged. I think I've read up to 80% of us employees are not engaged at work. And Dan, you're saying if this is not an issue of motivation, it's an issue of biology. So what does that mean? What is the research on that?
1: Yep. Well, the thing that i stumbled on over the last three years, I think the most interesting thing I've learned in the last 10 years is that there's this part of our brain, and I call it the seeking system. Um, neuro, some neuroscientists also call it that, but some call it the ventral striatum. I don't mind which one we use here, but seeking system's a little easier to come out. Um, this part of our brain, well, first off, is innate. And that means that children have it. You know, you, you have a little two-month-old. They have a seeking system just like an adult does. And also all the other mammals have it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a, mice, a mouse would have this or a cat would have this. And this part of our brain is urging us to explore the environment. By explore, I mean try to find stuff you don't know about and learn more about that. It's also trying to get us to experiment with the environment so that we can learn about cause and effect. So like just some examples of this, if you had a cage full of mice and you put in there a little, I don't know, a little feeder where you had to push a trigger and then it gave little pellets of food, the mice would innately go to that and kind of fool around with it and experiment with it. Now, it's brand new. It might hurt them. It might be poison, but that's not the way they act. They go to it and they fool around with it. Or if you've got a little baby, I'm thinking like a little two-year-old, and, you know, your baby, you give them this toy, and it does light-up stuff, and it says their name and all this, and it's pretty cool. And for the first week, they think, oh, how cool. And then they're more interested in your car keys, Mm. It's like after a week or two, you can give them like weird stuff like a pen or you can give them your car keys and they put that in their mouth and they, the other toy that did all that cool stuff, they're kind of used to that now. That's over.
0: Mm. So really it's, it's like we're, there's, all of us have like an inner curious toddler that wants yep. to play with new things. So not nope. really conducive for the nine-to-five, repeating everything you did yesterday in a cubicle kind of thing, I'm guessing? I think
1: you're putting your finger on the problem. <laughs> yes. I mean, a really good way to think about this is in the 1900s, we invented management. You yes. know, if you think of it as uh, in 1850, you could buy shoes, but there wasn't a Nike. You know, there wasn't a 46,000-person organization where most people didn't really invent the shoes. They didn't make the shoes. They didn't sell the shoes. You know, most people... Do very small routine tasks and those tasks often feel pretty disconnected from purpose or pretty disconnected from effect. It's sort of like you do little things all day long repetitively and you don't always have a strong sense of why, strong sense of purpose there. And, um, you know, one way that I like to think of it, just to be refreshing, is we're kind of beta testing that idea. Like as a species, we kind of invented this way of working. It's making some people really rich. It's really good for distribution, but it's shutting a lot of us off Mm. because our brains weren't made for that repetition and that purposelessness.
0: Mm. Interesting. So interesting. And I'm, mean, you know, this reminds me of reading when I was in high school about Karl Marx and the Industrial Revolution, yes. and how he was talking about how this was the beginning of the end because gone are going to be the days of gratification where the pers- the woodworker makes the entire chair. Now are the days where they're making just the leg of the chair, leg after leg after leg in a factory, and yeah. that that was the beginning of disconnect. So, do you believe that that was the beginning of human disconnection at work?
1: Um maybe it's too strong to say that but I will say that biologically, if we go back to this neuroscience, I would say it's where dopamine meets Karl Marx. I've never thought about it that That's way before, deep. but I love That's it. That's deep, Dan. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me expand on that a little bit. I find it really interesting that when this part of the brain is lit up, meaning when we follow those urges to understand different ways to make the leg of that chair, different ways to make the whole chair, and we have a sense of who's going to use that chair. Maybe we meet the person who commissioned the chair. Maybe the chair doesn't work out. It's not rocking very well. They come back to us and say, hey, that was kind of a crap chair you sold me. That idea of following those urges seems to release dopamine, and dopamine is a feel-good enthusiasm drug. You know, you might call this like the legal cousin to coach cocaine. It, it is not the sort of drug that makes you feel complacent and want to relax and settle down. It's the kind of drug that makes you en, um, like energized. It makes you want to do more of that thing. And so the idea that life feels more energized when we can follow the urges of our seeking system is a fact it's it's a biology, not a psychology um and you know, I've not thought about it from a Karl Marx perspective, but he was touching on some truths about what not only humans need but what mammals need in order to flourish mm. so like for example let me give you a couple more examples yeah i'm into
0: animals. this dopamarks dopamine and karma dopamarks.
1: <laughs> dopamarks i think that we need to publish that book together <laughs>
0: <Dopamarks>. <laughs> i'll send that to you right after i'm done writing the u-turn book <laughs> Fabulous.
1: Fabulous. well get this um as near as I can tell from reading, and I've read, you know, a couple of different studies, empirical studies on this, if you have an animal in a zoo and you just give it its food, you just put it on a plate and you stick it in there and it just gets the food, it is less likely to be healthy and it's more likely to show depressive symptoms than when it has to find the food. Wow. It has to kind of like go and seek it and at best, it has to chase it, it has to like kind of Act as though it's seeking it
0: out, oh my God, Dan, This is going to give me a breakdown. This is like dating right like you can't <laughs> you can't be too available or the guy doesn't want you. is this real life? It's the same oh, thing, huh? I guess so I' oh, say no.
1: Um, oh, I, God. Know, I, love, I love how you're just reinterpreting this stuff as we go, but I think that... Yeah, um, I'm like
0: dismantling that, all your research. You're like, let me tell you something I think tell. you're adding
1: to it. You're complimenting it. Okay, <laughs> um, so here's what's interesting about this. Here's another one I mean. You take an orca whale out in the wild, an orca whale without any medicine, lives about 40 years. If you take that orca well and you confine it in a sort of a cage where it doesn't have the ability to fool around and play around and sort of like it, can, it just has to do like these repetitive acts in a small cage, even with the best healthcare, you have its life expectancy. It's now up 20. So, what we're finding, and you know, by we, I mean humans, I mean we scientists, are finding that there is something about activating the seeking system and following these urges to be playful, to be creative, to innovate, to try new ways to do things, to understand the cause and the effect of our actions. Um, there's something that's really intrinsic and neurological about that that ten years ago, twenty years ago, I don't think we knew about. Mm. You know, neuroscience is very new as a field.
0: Mm. So it's affecting and our life expectancy if we can't play or seek or follow that flow inside that's, of us that is hungry for something new or it. to experiment. Okay. That's it. Wow. So you've really
1: got it nicely there. The way that you just said that I think is you know accurate and I also think it's at the cutting edge of what we know. Mm. And so, you know, we, we can kind of like track some more of that stuff down if you want.
0: Well, and let me ask you, I mean, the, you're you're right. It's a reality now that some of us are stuck in the cube until we're not, until, you know, until some of you listening sign up for that free e-course at UturnPodcast.com on how to get a job, um,
1: a new yeah. job.
0: But, you know, Dan, what, do, what does somebody do if they are feeling stifled in their job and maybe they have the golden handcuffs where they don't want to leave because they want to keep making the same money, which I'm sure I could just bust through all of those myths right now. But for, yes. you know, for to honor the time, what can somebody do if they decide I want to stay in my job that is suppressing all of my flow, creativity and experimentation. Is there some way people can play that out outside of work or is work too much of a domination in people's schedules that the seeking part of them is like slowly dying in desperation yeah. at their
1: cubicles. Yes. yes, that's a really great question. I'm going to answer in a way that focuses on the work. Great. I'm, I'm going I'm to do that because I know the most about it. I'm also going to do it because it's where so much of the empirical research resides. And I'm also going to do it because that's where we actually spend most of our hours. You know, when we're awake, we have to sleep apparently. And sleep's really important to health as well. So you don't want to just sleep. But once you take sleep out of your day, pretty much what you do then is you work, you know, definitely more than you see your family, you work. Mm -hmm. And if we can find a way to reinvent work to light up our seeking system, if we can find triggers that activate our seeking system and give us that dopamine at work, then I think alive at work has a lot to do with just alive. There's so much spillover between how we feel at work and what we bring home that I actually think that concentrating on where we spend most of our awake hours is a really practical place to start.
0: Yeah, two-thirds of our waking life.
1: Mm -hmm. Amazing, amazing. So there's three triggers, and um, I can throw them out there really quick, and then what we could do is track each one of them down, and I could we could talk about uh, what that would look like for – Just an individual in a job and yeah. Okay. So the three triggers to the seeking system are number one, that you reflect on and play to your unique strengths, your unique values. Um, Technically you could call this self expression. So that's number one. And we can talk about that quite a bit more. The second one is that we prompt ourselves to be curious to take on tasks that allow us to learn and experiment. And the way I want to pause, I'm going to hit the pause button there. I don't mean because our boss is asking us to. I don't mean we do it for a raise. I I don't mean that we do it for a bonus. It's not because we have to follow the rules. It's we find something that we are curious about. And even if it means working harder, we throw ourselves time toward that. Mm -hmm. Almost thinking about work as a platform that we can take on extra tasks in order to learn, in order to be curious. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people just don't think that way. I think, and I didn't used to think that way. I think that where I come from, that's a very counterintuitive thing to do. Mm, got it. So sure. that's the second one. Where do you so come from, Dan? One.
0: Curiosity, very counterintuitive. Where are you from?
1: Oh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania.
0: Oh, not cu- no curious people allowed in Pittsburgh. <laughs>
1: I think that part of what I'm hinting at there is like my dad was a truck driver. My mom was a secretary. Mm. My older brother became a truck driver. He now works in a water authority. It's, Um, What I mean is there is a way of thinking about work, which is it's what I don't want to do. And so I'm going to do as little as possible of it.
0: Mm, What a way to suppress curiosity. Okay, understood. And what is the
1: third point? It doesn't mean that anybody is evil or immoral. It just means that life starts when I'm not at work.
0: Yeah, and I, I definitely have seen plenty of that mentality. Yeah. So I'm guessing that pervades so many different households because your belief system starts at a young age. It's all about what That's your parents it. tell you, unless you question it. So, okay. It. And point number okay. three, what do we and got? Point number
1: three is understanding the why of the work beyond the money. Mm. Um, It's putting yourself in touch with the end user and again, I have worked with people that in addition to their real jobs, you know, we can go through some stories and some examples, in addition to their real jobs or what their boss is kind of expecting them to do, they find ways to go above and beyond what is it needed. In order to connect with the user of their work, to understand how that user is affected when it's done good versus bad, to understand what that end user's problems are and how maybe you can even help them in a way by understanding and empathizing more. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so these are all things that are actually practical and they're free. It takes a bit of time and energy, but what I have found and what others, not just me, my gosh, there's a whole literature on this now. What this literature suggests is if you give more into your job in terms of following the urges of the seeking system, you actually end up taking more from the job in terms of purpose and happiness and even life expectancy.
0: Mm, It just comes back to the same point that you create your life. It's almost like becoming an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur in your job taking, you know, taking intention and uh, speaking up. So the first point you said was playing to your strengths and your values. That's something that I've spoken about a lot. That's something that Jonathan Fields, we had on the podcast. He talks about purpose. What would you say, um, you know, succinctly, if you can, is the best way to get in touch with strengths and core values?
1: There's two things that I would mention. Something that we do is we get people to go out to family members, friends, work colleagues, mentors, and we have them write stories about times they've seen you at your best. Amazing. So we call this a best self-activation, and we actually have started a company that does this, but you don't need a company to do this. It can be done on email, but it's about getting the facts from their perspective about who you are when you make your best contribution. And we have found that these stories are really inspirational and personal and emotional Mm. because if you've got a friend and a work colleague and your mom and a brother and your boss saying, oh, that time that I saw Ashley at her best, here's what she was doing. What we have found is that not only ignites you, but it gives you evidence that you can do that, that you can be that. And then that allows you to start thinking about, oh, in what environments am I at my best? In what sorts of conversations am I at my best? What sorts of tasks am I working on? And that actually gives you evidence to start this job crafting. By the way, I really like, Ashley, when you called it an an entrepreneur of your own job. Mm -hmm. That essentially is what job crafting is. It's taking the autonomy and taking the agency back. And saying, the job is not a cell that I have to squeeze myself into. The job is a platform that I can use to explore and exhibit my strengths. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a mindset that's very powerful.
0: Mm, So good. I'm all about creation. And, you know, what What would you have to say for somebody who maybe is a bit overwhelmed? Like maybe they've suppressed their inner seeker for so long, their inner toddler, yes. you know, or if I go to yoga in L.A., the inner child yeah. for so long that it's hard to reconnect to. Wow. Uh,
1: that. That's a great question. I would like to give you an analogy and then we can talk about fixing it. Okay. Let's do it. The, the analogy is very painful, but Martin Seligman used to shock dogs back in the '60s. He would put dogs in these cages and he would shock one side of the cage, and the dog would yelp and urinate and scratch about. Oh my God, this her.
0: is so hard to listen to, Dan. You're really going all yeah. in
1: with your analogy. It's pretty painful, I have to oh say. But um, you know, hang in there because it's worth it. Am I gonna get I an email
0: it. from Peta like at the end of this <laughs> podcast? Like, who are you bringing on? <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, you can cut this bit out of it. No, I'm not.
0: I'm keeping it. I'm committed. Okay.
1: Shocking the dog. The dog learns that if it jumps to the other side, it can escape the shock. But then he would shock the other side and then it would jump back. Eventually, in this research, it sounds really bad, but he would shock both sides. And eventually, after jumping back and forth repeatedly, the dog would just lie down and take it. Oh, my God. It would just accept the shock. And that's called learned helplessness. Oh, my God. And I believe that what we've created in many organizations is a form of learned helplessness because inside us we have this welling up of curiosity and this need to explore, and that's a biological need. But then we find ourselves in these cages, these organizational cages, where it doesn't seem it's possible to do any of that if we want to make money. And what you're talking about is a form of learned helplessness where after 10 years, 15 years, we just say, the hell with it. I'll save me for the weekend. And Mm -hmm. I feel as though that problem is what you just articulated. There's a form of learned helplessness that I've seen in my family and my friends where they just say, never mind. I'm not even going to try to be me at work. I'm just going to shut off. I'm just going to accept it. And then I'll try to have hobbies on the weekend. Mm -hmm. And That type of work-family balance, quote-unquote, I think that that's deeply wrong-headed. And I also think that that is um, sickness-making. You know, that sort of, well, um, I'm just going to give up Monday to Friday, and I'll treat it like a commute to the weekend. And then come Saturday, I'm going to be a weekend warrior, and I'm going to come alive um, there's just not enough hours, and there's not enough life there. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I know. It's
0: like, how do you expect to have a party at 5 if 9 to 5 really sucks?
1: Exactly. So we're not
0: that bipolar as a society. That's I mean, it. kind of sometimes,
1: but not really. There's too much spillover. Yeah. There's too Yes. Yeah, so you got it there, actually. Okay. Um, so anyway, that notion of learn helplessness really, for me, helps me understand why it is the case. Listen, nobody is 16, 17 years old coming out of high school saying, what I want is a job where I can just be bored and where I can just shut off and get through it. Nobody says that, but a lot of 25 and 30-year-olds say that. Five, 10 years into the job, they're like, you know what? Nobody even wants to hear about my unique thoughts. Nobody here wants me to even experiment. They just want me to like do the same thing. And I can't even feel the purpose of what I'm doing because I never even get to meet anybody that uses my stuff.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Mm. So you've really put your finger on for many, many people the problem. And you also, by the way, cited the evidence, which is 70% of the world feels disengaged from their work. They feel like they have to shut off to get through it. And 80% say that work is a place that they cannot be their best.
0: Mm. Okay.
1: Those are global numbers. Those are worldwide numbers.
0: Mm, got it. Okay. Wow. And I mean, okay, so let how do we reconnect? And I've yeah, written about this a lot. Right now. Well, you know what's you know what's also really big with this is and I've written about this um for my email subscribers, is this idea of disconnect. How often is it the case that people feel disconnected? And they look outside of themselves and say, oh, wow, I feel disconnected. This must be an invitation to leave, to abandon ship. I don't feel connected. But what I've found time and time again is if you're disconnected, that's an invitation for you to go deeper with yourself. Because if you keep taking your little disconnected self everywhere, disconnect is going to be everywhere. It's really about asking yourself those questions. So how can somebody find that spark again and overcome the learned helplessness that they've been buying into over the years, you know, without realizing completely that they did.
1: And I want to play back to you that I do think that they are both, both of those responses can be valid. So uh, I have worked with some people. Okay, so I'm going to talk about these three different approaches and I believe that they all work, but I have worked with people whose supervisors continued to thwart them and that at every turn, the organizational culture punished them for being innovative. They, they got hurt for showing more of themselves at work when they tried to overinvest. They did all their normal job, but they tried to add in more. They kind of got yelled at and said, stay in your lane. And so I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish. You know what I mean? I, I don't want to act as though, oh, it's all just think it better you know sometimes there are environments where it is very very difficult to thrive and i have worked with people who by they try they try they try and then they finally try a new place and they thrive mm. you know because the culture encourages exactly what they are trying to do themselves so i i myself don't want to shut that path off as an, an inadequate path or a failure path, but where we're on the same page, actually, is I do believe that there are things to try within your existing environment first. Mm-hmm. And these three things, what we could do is start unpacking those a little bit. Yeah, let's Yeah. Because some of them are a little bit more than a mindset. It's almost like the mindset switch is what gets you to try them, but then trying them are behaviors. You know, they're new tasks that you're experimenting with, and we could, we could kind of talk about those a little bit. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So, first let me just kind of say a couple other words about this concept called job crafting. That isn't something I invented. There is a research... Sounds like it's straight
0: out of Star Wars, like, star <laughs> job, job crafting. <laughs> Okay, job crafting. Let's talk about. I
1: shall job craft now. Job crafting initiation.
0: All right, (laughs) let's get down with this sickness. What is this? (laughs) Okay,
1: Um, well, there's more than one way, but there is tasks and there is purpose. You also could talk about social or network crafting, but I, I don't worry about that one quite as much right now. But um, the task one means you think really hard about once you've done the thinking and the evidence um, chasing around who am I when I'm at my best and when am I really thriving and when am I coming alive, you start thinking about are there ways either to do more of the tasks that light me up or are there tasks that I would like to add into my job that would light me up, but that I'm not doing now? So mm-hmm. let me give you an example of that. There was that person that was a salesperson, he's really good at it, and before you know it, he got a promotion. Then he got another promotion, six, seven years into the job, he's a director of sales. So the good news is he's making a load more money, you know, in Mercedes, nice house, all that kind of stuff. The bad news is he didn't like his job anymore. Mm-hmm. When he was a salesperson, he got all lit up and he got the buzz and he got dopamine and you know, he's, he loved being a hunter and out there kind of like convincing people. You know, there's a real buzz to sales mm-hmm. for some people. Mm-hmm. but when you are a director the, the phrase that he used is bullshit meetings mm. it's just a lot of meetings after meetings and it's like okay here's the new sales itinerary, the new products we're going to launch out and now we're going to talk about the sort of new corporate policy around travel and now we're going to do um, our performance evaluations where we sit down with all the employees and tell them about their smart goals and and so what he said is it just felt like he was an order taker now it used to be that he was like a hunter and now he felt like an Order taker. So what he did, you know, we talked a lot about what lit him up. And we talked a lot about sort of his underlying, um, you know, needs and motivations. Here's what he did. He decided that he, on top of all his normal work, his normal KPIs, his normal goals, he was going to go out once a week and just meet with an actual customer. He'd hop in the car, and he'd go actually meet with a customer, and he'd just sit there with them. Like, he might go to a distributor and just sit down with the operations person and say, what are some of your problems right now? Like, what are you trying to solve? What's? Or he might go to, like, a grocery store, like a supermarket, and say, what's moving right now? What's hot? What surprises you right now? And he would just listen, just talk. Now, he learned two things, probably more, but the two things he told me are he was surprised, number one, about When he went back to the office, how many of his other tasks felt more alive? Mm. Like, for example, he said, if I'm sitting there listening to the new trend reports in a bullshit meeting, all of a sudden I can relate that to what that guy or that woman just told me on Friday about trends. And it kind of just makes it more meaningful. And then he said, like, if I'm interviewing somebody, I can talk about a real-life Um, example instead of something that happened seven years ago for me. So it sort of made the work feel more generative and alive again for him. So that's number one. The second thing is he learned, he started making sales. He told me there's no better way to sell than just not try to sell. You just listen to people and they hear that you're listening and they like you more and then they want to do business with
0: you. Mm, amazing. <laughs> oh,
1: on a Friday after like expanding somebody's share of wallet and he would say, "Yep, I still got it."
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. How interesting. Yeah, who knew listening to people makes them feel good? <laughs> there you yeah. go. Yeah. yeah. Okay, tell me more.
1: Okay, so that uh, what I would say about that is by inserting that task into his job, he had to give more. I'm not saying that that wasn't energy. He had to work harder. He had to put more in. But what he was able to take out of it was not only the sense of flourishing, you know, this sense of like being connected, of being a contributor, of feeling kind of lit up. But it also paradoxically made him into a better worker. Because being lit up is something everybody around you notices.
0: It's contagious. You know, but you know what? You're bringing up an interesting point, and it's this. It's that so often people are thinking this job is toast. I don't want to do any of this. And what you're saying is maybe as a line of defense before you leave, considering is there something that you can add into your job, take initiative on that is going to light you up and is going to in- not infect but be contagious? Yeah. That's right. throughout the rest of your job that improves your results. And you know what? It's funny because I had a one-on-one coaching client a long time ago. She was a mother transitioning into the workforce full-time part-time. She was a salesperson as well. And she used to tell me on and on that she was feeling really disconnected from her job because there was nobody to talk to. She was working remotely and she really wanted human connection. She wanted to come to an office. They didn't have one. And, You know, so is it possible that it could also just be like a feature of the job and not a task itself? Because, you know, she was convinced maybe sales isn't for me anymore. And I thought, you sound to me like you'd be great at sales. It feels to me like you just need some humans around you. That feels really important. So is it about what you're doing or is it that maybe there's a quality or a way your soul needs to be in the world, like around other people that is a key factor that you can ask for at work?
1: Okay, so you did bring up the second thing then. And this hey, is one
0: that look at me, uh, like a yeah, neuroscience researcher. Okay.
1: I feel like uh, I have spent more – less of my personal time with this one but what you're talking right now is about like social crafting you know this idea that you can choose often who you want to work around and even sometimes what customers you want to work with and not work with and that's something that a lot of people forget or not even willing to push on but um, I worked with consulting um, people in consulting for example that slowly work their way into the zone of customers that they have the most passion for, you know, that might be education or that might be healthcare, that if there's an intrinsic fire um, that's pushing them to feel purposeful when they work on that topic, even though they're sort of just a consultant, to be a consultant for a healthcare company lights them up. And so it doesn't happen overnight. It might be something that you move toward over the course of a year or even two years, but the idea is over the course of two years, you might end up being the 80% of your clients are healthcare. And that might make the same job feel quite a bit more lit up. Yeah. And it, and yeah. So the very example that you just gave is just another really good example where I might do the same work, but I might find that doing it around other people lights me up more.
0: So it's really just about asking yourself these deeper questions of, have I taken initiative to be a seeker and create some sort of task that feels inspiring and experimental and interesting to me? And that kind of lends itself down to another question, which is let's say somebody's at work and they want to be, you know, tapping into their inner seeker and they're going to job craft, you know, (laughs) but let's say, you know, because we're such experimenters, is there something to be said for, well, maybe they just want to create a project because it sounds like our inner toddler is also going to get bored of that too. Like how do we balance suggesting something to our manager saying, hey, can we take initiative on this project versus the reality of, oh, my inner toddler seeker experimenter is probably going to get bored of this in six months too. Like how do we find that balance?
1: Yep. Um, yeah, there's a couple of things about that. One of them is um, this idea of – if you pursue a direction or you pursue a potential, I don't know that it does, quote, get boring, unquote, after you get there. I I feel as though that is one of those things where you can continue to grow on. It may be that the very specific thing that you took on or take on, you like, okay, got that now. You know, we're six months in. But that doesn't mean that there isn't then the next step to add on top, maybe building on or scaffolding on whatever knowledge you just picked up from the last six months. So- um, you know, I don't know too, too much about that, but I would also say that this conversation idea that you came up with is really critical. Mm-hmm. The idea of sitting down with your supervisor and not saying, you know, what can you do for me and my inner seeker, but maybe more around saying, I bet you I could be more effective in this job if I was doing blah, blah, and blah where the blah, blah, and blah were, in fact, the sort of light-ups. you know, They mm-hmm. were, in fact, the activators of your seeking system. So I feel as though even in an old-school hierarchical kind of organization, most leaders, and I do say most, not all, most leaders are going to get pretty interested if you start talking about things that you'd like to bring to the job, mm-hmm. ways that you think you could do the job better. That's going to be music to most managers' ears.
0: Well, what do you do if you're swamped and it's like you're swimming in a t- ton of shit for lack of a better term that you don't want to do yeah. how do you say hey can we put this one task on the back burner and let's consider some things that light me up like how do we approach the conversation because i know everybody listening one of the biggest value ads i always try to do is let them know a suggestion for how to communicate something that feels overwhelming like this
1: yep yeah. well um I believe everyone is going to be different. You know, it's not as though there's going to be sort of like, here's how all bosses are. So I think each of these approaches might be a little bit different. But the broad view of starting with, here's what I, here's when I thrive on the job. You know, these are the tasks that I would be really interested in throwing more of myself into. Uh, I can't do everything. These are the tasks that kind of shut me off. You know, these are the tasks, activities that I just don't feel like I'm in flow when I'm doing. I feel as though I'm at best average at, and there might be other people that could really do more of that. Um, I think that type of an honest, self-insightful conversation, again, would be something that most leaders would be open to. Mm -hmm. And I think even the idea of not treating it as I'm complaining that I have too much to do, Mm-hmm. Maybe more of, I have a way that I could invest more of my best into this job, you know, that I have strengths, but I kind of have to shut them off in order to get this bit done. Is that what you really want me to be doing, you know, mm-hmm. Mr. and Mrs. Boss? I think that that's actually pretty, um okay, taking a step back, it really all does start with, number one, a mindset That the job is not a cell that you have to fit yourself into, but the job is something that is living and that you can bring your inspiration to. That's a mindset switch. A lot of people aren't thinking that way. You
0: can create (laughs)
1: that you can create and that number two, it means that you need some evidence on this. Mm. Um, it's possible to do it all through self insight, meaning you just kind of sit back and you just think about times that you have been at your best in and out of work. You write down stories about times that you can remember being in flow when time just went away and, uh, and you really felt like you were achieving your potential in the world Mm -hmm. you you might be able to do that through self-insight we tend to think that self-insight is only a little bit of it um there's this concept called a looking glass self and so much of who we are is how other people respond to us Mm. and and this idea of doing the diligence doing the evidence seeking where you go out and you say you people that have watched me across the decades in these different environments you know, at work on vacation times of crisis could you just write about a time that you can remember me making my best impact, like a time that I really seemed like I was being my best? And you know, we'll do this for you, but the thing is, you don't need us to do it. If you treat that as doing the work, you know, putting in the time, gathering the evidence, it's it's not me, 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 make me feel good. It's I'm trying to learn how I can make my biggest contribution on this earth, and you people have the evidence that I need on that.
0: I think that that's really great. Also, kind of going back to the question I was asking of how do we deliver this information to managers is and and those of you listening, maybe looking for a way to communicate this after you have some introspection or have people write the story of where you were totally lit up in your life. So you can take notes from that is maybe going up to your manager, and and by the way, I'm a big believer in setting a time for a conversation that's meaningful because if you treat a meaningful conversation haphazardly and knock on their door and come sit down, they're going to look at you often haphazardly like it's just a casual conversation. So first things first is scheduling a time to have the conversation after you've been introspective. But secondly, considering saying something like, Hey, these are the responsibilities I'm working on. I have no problem doing them. I'm learning. But here's where I think I could be even more powerful at work. Here's a contribution that I think is really in my zone of genius, my Zog. Did you just call it a Zog? I called it a Zog.
1: You always call it a Zog? (laughs) Yeah,
0: you know, I've been doing that (laughs) lately. But... You know, I don't know if your manager is going to get that one. So maybe steer clear of the Zog folks, but you know, saying something like this is where I think I could really be in a zone of genius and here's the impact I think it can make. And not only can I make an impact, but I think it's really exciting and I feel like it's going to inspire me even more. I understand yeah. that I might have to work harder, um, but yeah. are you willing to take a look at these responsibilities I'm working on and help me figure out maybe if there's somewhere I could taper? Because if I introduce this new initiative, I'm really, really clear that I might be able to create this result, this result, this result. This result, and I'm going to be more motivated, and I'm willing to put in the work. So, something a little more enthusiastic. Um, do you have anything to add to that, Dan?
1: No, that's um, a really excellent conversation, and this brings me to the point where I'm saying, if your supervisor does not respond positively to what you just said, treat that as evidence that you are probably in the wrong. You're you're working either with the wrong person, or you're if if that's pre- prevalent. Then you're in a company that is—it's not looking to explore your potential. And if that keeps happening, it's going to—it's going to lead to learned helplessness.
0: I was just going to say, I mean, if you're in a job like that, then what you're doing is these companies are accidentally, you know, in the way that they're behaving, l- looking for people who are having learned yeah. helplessness
1: that's right they're they're looking for people that are disengaged and shut off and just yeah. want to follow orders and I'd even go a step farther they're going to fail yes. that's not an organization that you would bet on if you were an investor that's a that's a non learning organization that doesn't value, experimentation, trying new things, people bringing their whole selves to work. I mean, I would not bet on that organization surviving.
0: Wow. That makes me think a lot about organizations or leaders who are listening right now, where it's like, if you could introduce into your organization a policy that every employee gets to choose one project that they're inspired by and that the company is going to make space for that to the best of their abilities. I wonder what would happen to the productivity of so many different businesses. And I know we had talked a little bit about the shift, shifting the focus from leaders to people. But before we get into that, I know your first topic was strengths and core values. Um, And then you had two other points. Did we completely unravel those yet?
1: No, um, to completely unravel them, you know, we would need many hours. But I mean, here's what we did do. I do believe we've touched on a lot of that. Yes. And I also feel as though by packaging them all at once in this, Job crafting sequence initiated by packaging them under that. It is not only practical. It kind of bundled them, meaning um, it's really that same approach. It's just saying, where do you have the skills and values that light you up? You know, where can you self express? that unique part of you that adds the most value to the team. That's number one. How can you experiment with your role and try to do it in ways that reflect the best in you rather than sort of a rule-bound, scripted approach? Mm -hmm. That's the second one. That's the experimenting and playing around. And then the third one is this notion of purpose. That's a very personal thing to say, you know, how is it that I care In an emotional, non-cognitive way, how is it that I care about what it is that I do? I think that the last thing that I could throw on top, we looked at that example where the person ended up talking to the customers, the salesperson, he went around and talked to the the customers. But I would say there's one last exercise that I would leave the listeners with. If you each would ask yourself the question, who is my customer and who is my customer's customer? And then start to develop competence around those questions. For example, if you're a salesperson, who's my customer? That's easy. It's the people I sell to. Maybe a little bit less easy is, who's my customer's customer? So I'm selling to this person. I'm trying to move whatever merchandise. What are they trying to accomplish? How can I learn about their problems? What are they curious about? Mm-hmm. By doing that, you start to develop empathy for their world and not only do you become a better worker because you're serving them, but you also learn more why it matters what you do. Mm-hmm. So that's important. A second and maybe last part of this is for many people, even asking the question, who is my customer? It doesn't mean outside the company. It might mean that I put together budgets and forecasting. The question is, who uses that? Mm-hmm. A lot of times people don't know. If you make it your job to know, to learn, to ask questions, to be curious, to ask them, when I do that well, how does it affect you? And if I mess that up, how does that affect you? You start to understand your role in this chain in a way that Karl Marx would be happier with and (laughs) that will also activate your dopamine. So there's Dopamarks there. Yeah,
0: Dopamarks hit. Okay, well, thank you so much. Just a final question is what is the best career advice that you have ever gotten?
1: Wow. I can tell you who and when, uh, and then we'd have to talk about what it was. Um, I was at Penn State University, and I had gotten a job with um, what was then Anderson Consulting, is now Accenture, and I was going to take that role, uh, it, back in the day it seemed to be a lot of money, it was $26,000 a year. Killing it. Uh, yep. Yeah, how about that, killing it, straight up killing it. And I also got into Cornell University to work on getting a PhD. Mm. And at the time, I almost went for the money. I was so close to just, you know, it, back then it really felt like a lot of money. And this PhD thing, it was so uncertain. And I had a professor, his name was Rick Jacobs, and he's a hero of mine. He said, Dan, in four years, your world will be a better place to live if you pursue this interest of yours, this talent of yours, this, this science and if you take this job within four years, you'll be, you know, a manager. You'll, you'll be a middle-level manager, and you'll it'll be fine. But you won't be lit up in the same way. And I deeply believe that was the best and most important advice that anybody has ever given me because it not only gave me the toolkit that I needed to be able to be a professor and to do the science and to do the research, it also allowed me to become, to be able to say out loud, I'm a social psychologist, you know, that my job is a research professor. It allowed me to have the confidence to be, to be that person. Mm -hmm. So anyway, thank you, Rick Jacobs.
0: Thank you so much for this. Where can everybody find you? You've been so informative and I know your book is out. Can you talk to us about where we can go?
1: Absolutely. So I'm really into Twitter these days. So I'm at DanCable1, and I send two or even three things a day now, cool stuff I find. I I try to promote ideas and not myself. So TED Talks and articles that I've read and Forbes articles and things like that um second thing is dan-cable.com that's i have all kinds of talks and sort of like podcasts like this one and things like that so i think those are two sources that people could go to
0: wonderful thank you so much and i know we were talking before this interview that there was about 20 dan cables on skype and i was dming all of them trying to figure (laughs) out you so i'm glad that you got dan cable one if not dan cable on twitter killing it again well thank you so much for being here it's been an honor and i'm really really grateful for your time
1: Hey, great
0: talking with you. Take care. I don't know about you, but I was completely compelled by Dan Cable learning about job crafting and social crafting and all of the crafting that we could be doing to completely change an ordinary circumstance and make it extraordinary. It was such a reminder, my conversation with Dan, and I hope for you too, that where you are isn't where... You have to be that if you are in a situation that doesn't light you up, it's not necessarily the case that you need to leave the situation. It might just mean that you need to change the situation. And I think we live in a world where everybody's looking for a Band-Aid and a fix it, whereas perhaps the answer is less in the Band-Aid and more in turning inwards to ourselves figuring out where can we be creative? Do we need to job craft, meaning do we need to add something into our job that completely lights us up and turn this job into something we want it to be and something that gives us the experience we want to have? Or do we need to social craft, change the logistics of the job, who we're around, how we're working with them? these questions I found to be so profound because more often than not having a private coaching practice, having an online course, and those of you who have tweeted at me, Instagram me, who have taken our free e-course at uturnpodcast.com. All of you guys, I know if you're anything like me, you've probably gotten to a space where if you don't like where you are, you don't necessarily go into that space of thinking, well, how do I change it? How do I change my job? Because we just buy into this collective belief that we are assigned a job and we're here to do it versus we're assigned a job and we're here to create it and leave a lasting mark in a way that inspires us and in a way that we want to operate in the world. So... The first question I left this conversation with Dan Cable thinking to ask you is where are you in a state of learned helplessness in your life right now? And I really want to just take a pause and ask you that again for you to really think about this. Where in your life are you in a state of learned helplessness right now? If I'm being completely honest with you, there was a while where I had a lot of success in my career and I had a lot of loss in my career after the success. And it was almost like in that phase, it was about a year I was burnt out. I told myself so many stories in my head to keep me from taking action because I was so burnt out. And eventually when I had my motivation back again, I felt so vulnerable to try again and put myself out there in business again that I was almost in a state of learned helplessness where I was like, well, you know, that was my, I'm like that quarterback on the football team talking about the good old days. That used to be me. That's not me anymore. I can't create anymore. Here's the deal. If you are an ambitious person and you feel lost, if you are a motivated, inspired, capable, hardworking person, and you feel the opposite of those things, that part of you is always there for you to tap into. There have been so many people that used to step into my office in Beverly Hills or on Skype because I know I've been coaching people all over the world and they'll say to me, Ashley, I used to be so ambitious. I used to be such a go-getter and I would always remind them the part of you that knows how to go and get is still there. You're just not choosing to tap into it right now and if you're moving into a state of learned helplessness, the question I have is what are you afraid of? What is the thought you're telling yourself that is keeping you from going out there and activating? What part of you is coming forward that's keeping you? What is that fear feeling like? Does it feel like anger? Does it feel like sadness? What do you feel inside? And what is this part of you telling you that's keeping you from taking action? And an incredible exercise to go deeper with this is journaling. So identify an aspect of yourself and freeform journal from that voice inside of you. If you do that every day for five days... You're going to release so much energy that you didn't know you were holding, and you're going to see a lot of subconscious thoughts that you didn't even realize you were holding on to. And I want to just end this post-episode conversation with you around life purpose. And obviously, Dan is a true scholar and very fun human, if you couldn't tell. (laughs) Um, But what I've learned with life purpose, and I've said it before, I'll say it again, is if you follow what feels good, there's always purpose on the periphery. So let's say that you have a few options in front of you for a new job or a new path and you're not really sure which one to take and you get, you're getting very much into your head about what's the right opportunity, which one do I do? My invitation is to put a ladder from your head to your heart and ask yourself, which one feels good when I feel into it, when I think about it, which one feels good? And if you follow that, it will never fail you because when you follow something that feels good, there are always more aligned opportunities coming at you on the periphery of that. For example, I created my e-course online for job seekers called the Limitless Career Lab. Um, you guys get a little slice of it on the free e-course for job hunting at UturnPodcast.com. Those of you who have signed up for that. And I really felt like I just had to do this course. And I failed at it for a long time. And the next thing I knew, 5,000 people joined the course in just a few months, I needed to hire employees. And I just became this like green entrepreneur that suddenly created success and had to figure out how to support it and teach customer service people to respond. We had hundreds of emails coming in. It was a really chaotic experience and also a very fulfilling, rewarding, mind-blowing experience. But what I got out of that was that long. the deeper I went into expanding that e-course, the more I realized, number one, I didn't want to be famous on the internet for an e-course, let alone, I don't really know if I want any level of fame for anything. I just want to contribute and add value and connect. Connection is my core value, so I, I want to connect. But what happened on the periphery of following that which felt good was I got a book deal opportunity. I started this podcast, which feels so good. And so much more. And because of those opportunities on the peripheries that I will follow because they feel good. The way I see life is as an experiment. And so I want you to ask yourself, where am I in a state of learned helplessness? What are the thoughts that are keeping me there? What aspect of myself, sadness, anger, fear is present and keeping me from taking action and being the person I know I am? Start freeform writing it and stop overthinking your next steps in life. Follow what feels good. See it as an experiment and trust that purpose is on the periphery. All right. With that said, I hope you love that episode. One of my favorite ones was with him, uh, Dan Cable, as much as I did. Such an inspiration and can't wait to connect with you later. Thanks again for tuning into this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. You can find all of the resources that our guest mentioned on our show notes at U-TurnPodcast.com. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N Podcast.com. Also, don't forget, on the website, we've got our four free e-courses, whether you want to land a new job you love, get clarity on the best career path for you, launch your dream business, or deepen your romantic relationships. I'll talk to you soon. Can't wait to connect on next week's episode.